Welcome back. We concluded the previous segment with a quote from the mathematician Pascal. The heart has its reasons that reason does not know. Let's continue our discussion now. Here's George. So, instead of being convinced by argument, most people who come into the kingdom of God do so by recognizing their own frailty, their own sinfulness, and their hearts respond to the offer Jesus makes to forgive and accept them. All this requires is that we accept the gift. In this world, we Christians are looked upon as aliens. We are viewed as a people with an odd belief system, a strange religion to which we cling. We are often scorned as not really fitting the culture in which we live. And truth is, we don't. Scripture says that we will continue to struggle. We will even continue to sin. We will continue to have calamities. There will continue to be suffering. But in spite of all that, we are and remain children of the living God, brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, royal priests in a royal kingdom, a kingdom of heaven. And so we should act like it. Romans 8 says this, The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And also, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you should not be like cowering, fearful slaves. And I would say this, don't apologize for your faith. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Be willing to take ridicule. Be willing to be considered an intellectual lightweight. Because your faith does not conform to the logic that a skeptic requires of you. Never mind the fact that the skeptic's faith is built on less. Romans 8 continues, You should behave instead like God's very own children, adopted into his family, calling him Father, dear Father. For his Holy Spirit speaks to us deep in our hearts and tells us that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we will share in his treasures. For everything God gives to his Son, Christ, is ours too. Faith and belief are very odd things in this day. But the truth is that there isn't anyone, skeptic or believer, who doesn't live on faith who doesn't live by belief. I can choose, if I want, to believe that the universe began without purpose and without a creator. I can choose to believe, if I wish, that the aggregations of atoms and molecules came together and made life happen purely by accident. I can't prove that, however. It's a statement of faith. And as a statement of faith, it does nothing to change how I live, or how I behave, how I treat other people, or how I treat my enemies. And so, in that sense, as much as I might want rationally and skeptically to cling to the accidental creation theory, I find it of little value. As Kurt Goodell, the mathematician, would point out, there are questions, problems, challenges in this system that cannot be solved within this system. But when I look at Jesus, 
and I hear what Jesus said about loving God, loving our neighbors as we love ourselves, and loving even our enemies, I find there a truth, a wisdom, a presence, and a power that transcends all the rest, that goes beyond it. God breaks open the physical world in which we are confined and drives into it an entirely new dimension of life and reality. If we taste it, we find that it is good. C.S. Lewis in Is Theology Poetry said this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. If I have to choose one or the other, skepticism or faith, accident or intentional creation, deduction or presence, then though I will fail again and again in so many ways, nevertheless, I choose to believe so that I might see. I want to turn now from our understanding of believing so that we might see to examine three really vital gifts that are given to us as a part of our walk of our life in Jesus. This comes from chapter 17, from what we believe and why. And it's called Peace, Mercy, and Breath of Life. These three deeply related gifts come to us when we enter the kingdom of God and begin to live in covenant, in relationship with God. We will look at these three and their intimate relationship. And we'll start with peace. In normal conversation, the word peace typically refers to a state of calm when there are no wars underway, whether between nations or neighbors. But peace in Scripture isn't that. It isn't the absence of conflict. It's a state of the soul. It is extraordinarily important for each of us to find that peace that comes from God, even in the face of grief, of conflict, of great trial. We will consider several aspects of this peace from different places in Scripture and then see how they all relate to this state of the soul, to peace. Let's start in the book of Isaiah. It was written some 600 years before the birth of Jesus and has many passages that are prophecies about the coming of the Messiah, the suffering servant. One of them is in chapter 42. Here Isaiah, speaking for God, says, Look at my servant, whom I strengthen. He is my chosen one who pleases me. I have put my spirit upon him. The word spirit in Hebrew is ruach. It means breath as well as spirit. The same word is used both to describe what God breathes into Adam's lungs to give him life and the Holy Spirit, ruach hakodesh, literally spirit the holy or breath the holy in the Old Testament. That's the word for Holy Spirit. 
God is speaking through Isaiah about the coming Messiah in Isaiah here in chapter 42. And he continues, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the peoples on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. That is, the Messiah literally is to be given as a covenant to the people. And now listen to Jesus at the Last Supper. This is from Matthew 26. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus also gave sight to the blind, and his followers were literally freed from prisons, thus fulfilling the prophecy from Isaiah 600 years earlier. But even more broadly than this, in Jesus, people are freed from internal prisons, places they have been trapped and bound by sin, by abuse, false belief, tradition, culture, self-righteousness, self-condemnation, pride, and more. Let's just think about this for a minute. You know, most of us don't really face prison time in an actual jail. Most of us face these internal kinds of prison that I've just mentioned. We are bound inside. We've grown up with abuse, mental, physical, sexual, emotional. We have been abused by school, by work, by the culture that we are in, in a thousand different ways. We've been trapped in beliefs and traditions and cultures. We are just as surely bound by what has happened to us psychologically and spiritually, internally, as are many who are actually locked up in prison. And so what for us will freedom look like? What does the Messiah bring to us? That we will find next time. Join us then. Well, if there's a topic that is relevant in our world, it's the pursuit of peace, the freedom from a staggering variety of things that have us imprisoned. Thanks, George. We'll continue this discussion next time on What We Believe and Why. 